Peter Thomas Fornatal here. We at In The Money Media are so happy to be partnering with Maggie Wolfendale on this new podcast series. On these shows, Maggie is telling the story of the horses through the voices of the people who love them and whose lives have been changed by them. Best of all, they're being produced to benefit our friends at the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation, whose mission of saving lives, both human and equine, is so important to Maggie and so important to us at the network. To make a gift to support this show and the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation, go to trfinc.org slash offtrack. That's trfinc.org slash offtrack. The next voice you hear will be Maggie Wolfendale. Fold February 20th, 2017, in Ontario, Canada, by Uncle Mo, out of Unspurned by Lemon Drop Kid. One start, never hit the board. Earnings, $4,350. Jockey Club name, underscore. This is his story off track, told by Natalie Voss. So pleased to be joined by my next guest, Natalie Voss of, well, I should say three times Eclipse Award winning a reporter for the Pollock Report. And Natalie, you are the proud mom of Blueberry, also known as Underscore for his brief time on the racetrack. But Natalie, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me here. It's always a pleasure to talk about Blueberry. I probably drive people crazy with how much I talk about him. So I love the opportunity to do it more. I follow through your posts on Twitter and the utter joy that he seems to bring you is is just very relatable and it it kind of spreads joy too. Yeah, that's always my goal. It's um it's been a really interesting experience kind of building a relationship with him. He's very different than my last horse and it's just I'm I'm never I'm never not thinking about, you know, the contrast and and just what an easy, sweet horse he is to deal with. It just really brightens every day. It's hard not to to compare, you know, past horses to present and, you know, but it also helps you learn and helps you to apply different things to your riding of of him. So in what ways is is he different? Um, you know, he very much has the the thoroughbred mindset that you hear about so often when people talk about off-track thoroughbreds of like he wants to do a job. He wants to go to work. And I think for him, he really doesn't care too much what that work is. He just wants to do something because his whole life was, you know, first thing in the morning, you go off and do something. Um, And I think that he's also just a very willing partner with whatever that's going to be. So my my last mayor, my my last horse was a uh, a Percheron thoroughbred mayor who had a lot of really good qualities, but she was not somebody who was highly motivated to do a physical job, particularly. (laughs) And so it was a little bit more challenging, whatever you were trying to do, it was sort of like, well, convince me that we have to, whereas he's kind of like, all right, what are we doing today? Like, I'm here ready to do this. And it just makes everything sort of a lot easier. And 
he's also just a very very sweet horse like he he really wants to be a good boy like he he's horrified at the concept that he might ever do anything wrong <laughs> so that just makes him really easy to deal with in that respect too that's what I love about thoroughbreds. They're responsive, sensitive, intelligent souls. Um, but your relationship with Blueberry kind of goes back before you even had him in your life. Why – I remember you following him through the sales ring. Why were you so kind of you know, enamored and, and intrigued by him? So I um, worked the yearling auctions a little bit when I was in college and I actually groomed his mother unspurned. And she actually went through the auction twice because she RNA'd both times. So she, I had her at Keeneland September and at Phasic October for Cara Bloodstock. Um, and I mean, I, I didn't do the sales like as a full-time thing because I was doing it around the edges of school. But I still kind of dealt with enough horses that I didn't get attached to most of them. I, I liked them well enough and I was happy to see them go on to the next phase of their life. But she was really, really special. I had not met a horse other than my mare who was that smart, but she was also just very, very kind. Like she didn't ever use her intelligence against you, I guess, um, which I thought was pretty impressive for a chestnut filly. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> not something you see every day. I have no idea if she stayed like that as she got older. She might have She might have become difficult at some stage, but um you know, I just, she really stuck out to me. And I think because I got her back the second sale too, I bonded with her that much more. And so I had followed her race career really closely. And she actually ended up being a really nice racehorse. Um, she was a graded stakes winner, multiple graded stakes placed in Canada. Um, and she actually won the Bison City Stakes, which is like the second leg of their Philly Triple Crown. So it was really, really fun to cheer her on. And then when I knew her first foal was coming up through the um, the auction system at Saratoga, I was really curious to know what he was like. And I kept sort of telling myself, like, there, there's no guarantee that he's going to be anything like her. Like, I just sort of go and see it just out of curiosity. But she's kind of a, a unique individual. Like, it's probably not going to be how much of the personality gets passed on genetically. I have no idea, but it's not necessarily going to be the same level of intelligence or, or kindness or anything. And then just kind of like watching him at the sale. I hung out at the barn a fair bit. I probably drove everybody crazy. Um, but just sort of watching how he processed his world. It was like, yeah, that's the same brain. Like she passed that on. And so I kept an eye on where he went. And luckily he went to, he was sold um, at Saratoga for 400,000 to Godolphin. And um I had a connection over there. I went to school with a girl who ended up working there and she was able to keep me apprised of what was going on with him and also put my name in his file, which I think was probably really helpful. Oh, neat. Um, so on, you know, that like, not to interrupt your, your yeah, yeah. thought here, but I know like Graham Motion with his young horses, they put a sticker on their jockey club papers that said, you know, if this horse ever needs a home, basically, please call Herringswell Stable. Did she kind of do that for you? Or I know Godolphin's such a, you know, enterprise that they probably have a really uh, organized system for, for, you know, their horses. Yeah. So it sounds like they have some sort of software program that like the horse has a file wherever the horse is as far as if they're on layup, if they're with a trainer, wherever it is that they are, the same information is traveling with them and they don't mind to put the name and number of somebody who's expressed an interest in a second home on the horse in there so that however it is that the horse comes to be retired within their system, 
then they have, you know, somebody will know that there's a phone number in there. And then they also have um, their own sort of internal rehoming system called like the Godolphin Lifetime Care Program, I believe is the name of it. And they have a person who's dedicated to um, rehoming horses, either sending them through the nonprofits or working with kind of established uh, trainers and, and riders that they've vetted uh, that are local. And so actually the my eventing coach works with them and gets a lot of her horses from them. So that ended up being a useful connection because even though they didn't know me, she was able to vouch for me when it came time for him to find a new place to go. That that is amazing. That's I mean, I feel like we should try to implement that system in a broader sense for all horses, but you know, well done for them to have that in place. But so I know he was briefly trained by Brad Cox. <laughs> uh, how did, you know, how did retirement come to fruition for him? So he, he only made the one start for, for Brad. Um, he, he was, from what they tell us, he had a lot of potential. He just couldn't quite stay sound. Yeah. And luckily he didn't have anything major um, in terms of his soundness issues. He didn't come away with anything that was going to have a lasting impact on him for my purposes. Um, but it was just kind of enough that I think he was out with a condylar for a little bit after his first race. They got that fixed. They had him working back at Ellis. Um, and then he had a little bit of ligament desmitis. And that was, I think, maybe the third or, third or fourth thing that he'd had come up since they'd had him. And at that point, they were just like, you know what? He's about to be four. Just what is the point <laughs> at this yeah. stage? And so I had seen the notifications stop on Equibase again. And you know, anytime they were, anytime the, the notifications went quiet for a little bit, I would sort of email somebody over there and be like, sorry, it's me again. Uh, what is What has he done to himself this time? And this time when I emailed them, he actually was already at the retirement farm. And um, they said, like, there's somebody else who's interested. Do you still want him? It was like, yes, yes, I want him. I'll take him. Um, I don't know where I'm going to put him, but I'm get yeah, I'll just, somebody will come and get him like soon. <laughs> That's so. great. Um, so when was that? That was Thanksgiving week of 2020. I was actually not in Kentucky. I was with my mother in Virginia and was sort of coordinating all of this on the phone. Like, uh, I'm sure there's there's a pasture space somewhere, right? <laughs> Just He actually got shipped over when I when I wasn't here. My, my husband went out to um, go meet the trailer and get pictures for me. It was it was all just very surreal. (laughs) Yeah. And so you mentioned that you work with an eventing trainer and that's like what you were doing with your, your draft cross mare, right? Yeah. Very low level stuff. And we had to concentrate on a lot of dressage for her just because of her build. So I sort of was already doing a little bit of, well, quite a bit of uh, just straight dressage. And is that what you're doing with him? Yes. I, and I'm not a very brave rider. <laughs> so I have got him working with our coach right now to learn how to jump with her. I have some hangups about jumping myself and I kind of want him to have the skill, but I don't know how much I'm going to, I don't know if I'm going to return to eventing with him or not, but he's going to sort of learn how to do it so that he knows how to do it. And he has that sort of cross training uh, thing available to him. And what he and I have been focusing on has been just the straight dressage because we also did the thoroughbred makeover last year. And with the time that we had, it seemed to me like the dressage phase was kind of 
something that was attainable and something we'd be working on anyway. So we may as well just sort of stick with that. And that's been really rewarding with him, actually. So I, I may go on just doing that. I may return to some eventing as well. We're just going to have to see. We're going to see how brave I am. <laughs> I think that's A-OK. Look, I, the OTGB that I, I had the longest, Colonel, he was – I'm I'm like you when it kind of comes to jumping. Like, I'll do it, but I, I never feel as though I'm actually helping the horse. Like, I feel like I'm just kind of – I'm like, okay, just do it. And I don't ever set them up for a horse. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them will naturally set themselves up. But Colonel – could not. He was oh. so for a horse that had such lovely movement uh, on the flat. He was so clumsy when it came to jumping. So <laughs> I purely stuck to dressage myself, and I enjoy every moment of it because for me, and even you know working with with horses on the track, it taught me so much about the mechanics of a horse mm-hmm. and how they should be using themselves properly. Have you found that yourself? Yeah, and it's been really interesting um, sort of doing some of the same dressage exercises with a draft horse and a thoroughbred, like I become really, really aware of the differences in build. But as I've done more of this with him, I've gotten better at feeling sort of different aspects of how he's holding himself, where his back is, where his shoulder is, where he's sort of placing his weight. I'm still developing that sensitivity. Um every few months I kind of pick up on something else that I can now feel that I couldn't feel before. Um, but if I was getting on a lot of different horses, that would be so, so useful. Like, I, I think that's like a really underrated sort of skill, especially like in, in the racing arena. I always think that the people who come from a dressage background or, or a riding horse background generally have such an advantage because of how they're used to having to be very aware of how, each limb is moving and how the, how the back is positioned. And that's really critical information for any kind of work, honestly. I personally feel like everybody should have like six months of dressage before they take out a, an exercise rider's license. I know that they might not seem connected, but they really are. And I mean, I can get on a horse like I've, I maybe haven't been on before for Tom and I'll say, he'll ask me, he's, he's very, a trainer who really loves like his feedback from his mm-hmm. riders and because you can watch all you want, but sometimes you can feel something totally different when you sit on their backs. And I, you know, a horse didn't feel as though he was extending himself in front, but I said to him, I said, it feels like it's coming from his, his back, like literally like mm-hmm. under the saddle. And I, I wrote him one day, I told Tom that he, I then I rode him two days later and he was a completely different horse. And he's like, well, how, how was he today? And I said, he was amazing. What did you do? And he's like, chiropractor, you were right. <laughs> so yeah. And I wouldn't, I don't think I would have picked up on that if I hadn't had the dressage. Yeah. And you know, it's actually sort of with both my mare and with him, I've, um, learned a lot more about how the strength of their back and their posture like really travels from the top down. Like I'd always sort of thought of lameness or, you know, any sort of limb issues as being a bottom up kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Like it comes from someplace down low and then eventually they get sore higher up if you don't kind of address the problem. But I think that sort of through the lens of dressage training and also working with the, the lameness vet that I work with, I've sort of been realizing like, no, this is in some ways, this is more of a, a posture thing. This is more of a like, is the back, you know, 
strong from side to side, from front to back? Like, are they holding themselves starting up there? Um, and then, you know, keeping the limb movement symmetrical from side to side and front to back the way that it needs to be. Because when it's not is when you tend to see problems down lower. And I don't think that I would have had that background if it wasn't for, you know, having the sport horse influence. Yeah. You just find that a lot of things are cyclical, you know, it's not linear necessarily Mm -hmm. when you're, you're diagnosing things. Um, I just, I find it fascinating though. I could never be a vet. That's for sure. (laughs) No, I, I don't understand how, how they keep all the information that they have to, not just in their brains, but sort of on the edge of their brains to constantly be able to remember what did we do with this horse last time? Oh, well, this horse tends to have this problem. And like, yeah, especially the the vet that I work with for Lima stuff, Dr. Chris Newton at Rudin Riddle, like mm-hmm. we had a little bit of a problem at a show a couple weeks ago. Um, and it turned out his back was sore. And that happens from time to time. We're, we're working through that. But you sort of said like, well, what probably happened is, you know, he braced the shoulder a little bit and then he had to dump onto the other shoulder. So then when you picked up the canner, you probably tipped forward and then he did this. Right. And I'm like, how do you know that? Like, yes, that's exactly what happened. But how did you know that? I know they're, they're fascinating and, and just so smart. And gosh, um, <laughs> I, I, I just live in their shadow a lot of times when it comes to, you know, I, I, I'd love to pick some of the, the vets' brains that have just been around and seen so much. Absolutely. They, they have the best stories, too, vets. Um, when, they, when they can tell you the stories of some of the stuff they've seen, they're, they're yeah. really interesting. They are. Now, I saw some blue ribbon action just recently at your first recognized show. Yes. So we, um, we wanted to do a USDF recognized dressage show just to sort of see like what the feedback would be like at that level. Um, the, the blue yeah. ribbons from yesterday are not, uh, in, in some ways are not hugely meaningful because uh, we were the only ones in both those classes. So as long as we finished, we, we were going to get a blue. But we had had kind of a rough outing uh, about two weeks ago when his back had been sore and, and mm-hmm. I hadn't realized that. And he really just not had a good day. There was bucking and it was it was not good. Um, so yeah. after that experience, kind of getting him stretching, getting him comfortable and then going back through a horse show, I was very anxious, even though I knew he's feeling fine. He's not going to do the same thing again because now he's very comfortable. You know, he doesn't remember that or he might remember it, but he's not really worried about that. But it was still a big deal for me to go back in the ring and be like, okay, you're fine. <laughs> Everything's fine. So they were they were sort of, you know, silly ribbons in a way. But after what we went through two weeks ago, I was like, no, I'm going to be proud of that. Because, like, I really wanted to scratch the day before the show. And I got us in there anyway. And he did wonderful. He was absolutely great. Isn't it amazing how to your emotions, you kind of feed off each other as well. I mean, you took that deep breath and said, we can do this. And he's like, yeah, mom, we can do this. What I love about him, actually, what makes him such a good fit for me is that like, when he's genuinely concerned about something, like we we had to hack up past um, a Saddlebred show was going on. Um, and he'd never seen, I don't think that he'd probably <laughs> ever seen Saddlebreds or Saddlebreds no. pulling carts. And that was just a lot to take in. Um, when he's genuinely concerned about something, if I sort of say, no, I'm not going to give this energy, you're fine. Like we're, we're, we're over here, we're doing this. Then he kind of will go along with me. But what I love about him is that if I'm nervous, he doesn't really take that on himself. He kind of notices and he goes, huh, well, that seems 
kind of unfortunate for you. I'm just going to keep doing what you're telling me to do. And, you know, you'll, you'll figure it out eventually. And that's really useful as an amateur writer, because you're going to have times where something kind of rattles you. And I could not have done this with a horse that sort of feeds off of every emotional change that they could sense in me, because I would drive them crazy, and they would drive me crazy, and we would just go back and forth. But he has a lot of emotional independence, I think, and that's super helpful. Is that something, too, you thought that his his dam, his mother had? Yeah, I think so. Because, you know, what I sort of noticed uh, about sales horses uh, generally was fillies are in this weird situation. They really just want a friend. And they really mm-hmm. just, if, if you're going to be the friend or the filly next door is going to be the friend, they kind of don't care. But they're really focused on whoever is going to emotionally support them. Mm-hmm. And... um occasionally you'd have one that might be a little naughty and they don't really need your emotional support, but they are going to mess with you kind of because they're bored. And it was sort of like one of those two types most of the time, but she was kind of interesting where she would be really friendly with you. But if you wanted to sort of like, no, 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 you need to be in your own space right now. Cause we're about to show. So, okay, that's fine. And she really just sort of didn't change her vibe particularly. Like she had to have some reason to have, a change in like the emotional kind of energy she was putting out. And it didn't really matter what was going on around her. If somebody else was kind of losing their mind, she would just kind of, Oh, well, that's unfortunate. And she would just sort of stand there. So I think that, you know, a little bit of that probably comes from his mother, but I also think that like being on the racetrack, all kinds of weird stuff's going to be going on around you when you're (laughs) trotting or cantering around since he was rehabbing a lot, he wasn't doing a lot of really intense work, but he would have had to deal with horses that might have been breezing on his inside and, and coming the opposite way. He had a the one morning I went out to see him train. There was somebody who I think their stirrup broke or their rein broke and the rider was yelling, going all the way around him the wrong direction. And he just kind of, well, I'm doing what I'm doing and I'm not really worried about what you're doing. So I think that probably reinforced that natural tendency. And it's so, so helpful. Uh, that's amazing. That that independent confidence uh, th- that you find in some horses, I, I think, is it helps you as a rider because um, you can kind of focus on the task at hand rather than, you know, worrying. Because while you try your hardest not to do it, you, your natural tendency is to kind of have that thought in your back of your mind of, oh gosh, what's going to happen next? But you got to always try to stay in the moment as a horse like Blueberry seems as though he does. Yeah, it's been a really useful lesson to me because even when we had him sort of in his very early days under saddle, like if something spooked him, he would spook and then he would immediately move on. Like he did not Mm -hmm. stay kind of elevated for the next five or 10 minutes and he didn't sort of mentally fall apart. So I think that most horses probably realistically do live in the moment, but he sort of very demonstrably lives in the moment all the time. And so I'm not good at doing that, <laughs> but I've been trying to, I've been trying to take a lesson from him of like, remember, he just sort of goes on with his day and that is fine. He does not suffer from that. That makes his life a lot easier, in fact. So like, just sort of try to go along with him and move on from whatever it was. And I'm getting well, better at it. <laughs> he sounds amazing, but What has been maybe the biggest challenge for you guys? I think really the challenge for both of us has been just me sort of trusting myself a little bit more as a rider. Mm. Um, He's a really good horse for that because he's going to reward that kind of those attempts to build confidence and those attempts to 
kind of work through some mental hangups. But, you know, having come away from a really good and, and but also really challenging horse, you know, you come with a little bit of baggage. You always come with baggage from the last horse, no matter how easy or challenging they were. Um, but I think that probably the first season, especially uh, with him, it was a lot of kind of figuring out like, what what are the what are the limits of this horse? If I have to add a lot of leg because he's getting really lazy, is he going to overreact to that? Or is he going to ignore me? Or what, you know, sort of finding mm-hmm. our way through. I know what to do here. I just need to try to do it and see how he responds. And we're still kind of dealing with some of that, although that's gotten a lot better as we've gotten to know each other better. And what are your, you know, kind of immediate and maybe long-term goals with him? So this season, we're hoping to go to the Central um, Region Dressage Championships for the Thoroughbred Incentive Program. Um, They're putting those right after uh, the Thoroughbred Makeover this year at the Horse Park. So it's really close to us, which is great. Um, Longer term, I think it's probably going to vary season to season. Um, If they keep bringing that show back, that'll probably be my sort of season goal for um, any season that I can go off and do that. I've been kind of debating part of why I wanted to go to a recognized show is I wanted to see like, all right, what is the scoring kind of like, do I want to really focus on this and think about trying to get a bronze medal? I'm not really sure if I do or not. That's never really something I've had in my brain before. So we're still trying to decide, like, do we want to stay at the schooling show level and really focus on tip stuff? Or do we want to sort of try to go to the recognized level as well and mix some of that in not really sure yet we're just kind of we're playing with stuff (laughs) that's great I I think that's wonderful Uh, and two you know what some people might not realize about dressage is that you get a test where the judge is sitting there writing comments on each of your movements so just going to shows is so useful to improve your writing oh yeah it's been really great because they they give you feedback on what they're seeing and my husband always very kindly takes video of the, of the test so I can go back and, and see what they were seeing in, in real time and, and look back at how they responded to that and it's been interesting to see we've had sort of we get some of the some similar ideas from from judges as we've developed but they're all expressed slightly different ways yeah so that's kind that's of always useful. a challenge <laughs> I, I'm sort of, I'm starting to see the pattern now, but it's uh, the first couple times it was like, well, wait a minute, the last person said this, and but what, what do you want here? But now I'm starting to figure out like, oh no, I see what they mean. They're just expressing it differently. And it's been interesting to see like, which ones are sort of, you know, you, you get, you get some people that really focus on a, a particular aspect of a movement, either positively or negatively. And then you get some that you're kind of getting a more broad impression of what they thought of the horse overall. They are scoring the individual movements, but I think they're looking at the test sort of as a whole as they're doing that. And that's been really interesting because then you can get sort of broad feedback and sort of really specific feedback. And it's been really helpful actually. I had, so when I showed a lot in Maryland, I showed in front of a a judge for life of me, I cannot remember her last name, but I remember her first name was Ingrid. She was an older German lady, and she was always hard on me about my like wrists and the mm. connection. She always said I looked too stiff. And one day, uh, Colonel had Colonel was always very cold backed, and I tried to get a leg up from my mom 
on him and he just completely freaked out, just, you know, bronking. And I fell off and I ended up fracturing my wrist. But I was like, you know what? It doesn't hurt that bad. I'm going to, I'm going to still show. (laughs) And boy, did she rip me apart for your right wrist is very, very stiff. (laughs) I "I wonder why. (laughs) But (laughs) now also with your, paying job (laughs) being a reporter for the Pollock Report. You've wrote some absolutely fabulous articles shedding light on things that need to be improved. Um, You know, some of the wrongdoings that we have in horse racing and and doing it for the better, for the betterment of the sport. I wanted to get your thoughts specifically on how do you think we're doing as an industry with regards to rehoming, retraining uh, horses after their racing days? Um, you know, I think we've come a long way in the last 10 or 15 years or so. I think that there's a lot of infrastructure in place that wasn't there before in terms of um, having the TAA accrediting um, nonprofits that retrain and rehome. I think we have a lot more nonprofits retraining and rehoming than we used to. I think there's also um, a lot more reputable for-profit trainers who are kind of doing what my coach does, putting, you know, 90 days on a horse and and selling it to a really good home where somebody's going to be working with a coach and and setting that horse up for success. Uh, But I think there probably is a tendency because we have come so far in that time frame for a lot of sort of key people in the industry who don't work with aftercare on an everyday basis to sort of think, well, that problem's kind of solved, right? Because like, we're putting all this money towards it. And we have the CAA and we have new vocations and you know, this organization, and that organization. So it's sort of fine now. And as far as I can tell, like, if you have a really sound horse coming off of the racetrack, it is going to be fine for most of them, because there's a real market for that now. Um, the makeover has done a lot for that too, I think, to stimulate interest with the amateur riders for off-track thoroughbreds. But there's still definitely a gap for horses that come off with any kind of soundness problem. Um, I know that there's challenges if you have a horse that's been retired and bred for several years, and now you're trying to find another place for it to go. There's still definitely gaps uh, regionally as well as for the horse type that are a huge problem and continue to be a huge problem. And what sort of frustrates me a little bit as a semi outside observer is that it's only going to kind of take one really high profile situation where the safety net that we do have in place did not adequately protect a horse for the outside world to say, Oh, you're not doing a good enough job at this. Yeah. We're sort of only one disaster away from everything looking inadequate and you can never totally guard against that, but we definitely still have areas that, we need to improve on. I think funding is probably a really big one. We've got a lot of organizations doing really good work, but the funding has not grown along with the sort of size and number of those organizations because people figure, I think, oh, there's a good chunk of money going to this. It must be fine. But I think there's maybe not a real understanding of what it actually costs to take a horse from the track, rehab it if necessary, and then move it on to a responsible place. Yeah. And you brought up a point where I, I do think a lot of horses fall through the gap of, of you know, like fillies and mares that come off the track and they go to be bred for, for several years. And, you know, maybe they don't turn out to be a great producer. Or they, they just have too many horses. And those are the real ones I think we need to, we need to provide maybe 
just a new or different kind of safety net to protect those horses because once they're off the track, their visibility diminishes, it evaporates. Mm-hmm. So um, that's a really good point and some, it's something that I think needs to be explored and uh, cultivated. Yeah, I was excited to see um, an organization in Kentucky, Second Stride, announce that they're kind of launching a separate program now, I think, to specifically focus on weanlings, yearlings, and former broodmares. Um, but I think that they, they've probably sort of announced that and highlighted it because that's, I'm guessing, going to be a program that takes a lot more money than the straight off the track horses because it's going to take longer to get those broodmares kind of back into some sort of casual riding shape. I mean, you can do it, but like they're going to need more time than a horse that was just being ridden at the track like two or three weeks ago. And the weanlings and yearlings, you got to let them grow up a little bit before you can really do, but so much with them and also have them like experienced enough to pass on to a person who maybe doesn't work with yearlings all the time. You you don't really want to adopt that out to the first person who comes along. So I'm guessing that's going to be a much more expensive program for them, but I was encouraged to see that development at least. Yeah, that's, that is good. Um, and, and something I, I think, you know, we shed light on and, and bring exposure to, uh, that, that they are doing that. Well, let's shift. <laughs> and at the end of these podcasts, Natalie, I'd like to ask just some rapid fire questions with regards to Blueberry, um, and his personality. So what is his favorite treat? Um, peppermints, but I mostly give him uh, Mrs. Pastor's cookies because he gets a little bit creepy if he has too many peppermints in a row, and I don't particularly care for that. So <laughs> we try to stay slightly lower sugar. <laughs> it's like they're like, oh, got a crib now. Um, so two, if he had a theme song, what would it be? Oh, so actually, we've we've thought a lot about this. Um, I think it's, is it Linus and Lucy? Is that the name of the the sort of Peanuts theme song that you're used to hearing? Something sort of happy and boppy and just kind of chill and pleasant. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's perfect. Um, And if he was a human, what would his drink of choice be? Oh, I don't, I don't think that he would really be a guy who hangs out at the bars too much. Yeah. Um. Maybe a beer guy if if he's going to have to go to a bar to hang out with you, but I could see him being happy with an apple juice. He's just a very mild-mannered kind of dude. I don't think he's really... I could see him getting really into juices, but not so much like alcoholic stuff. I think that would probably be too much for him. He would stay away from that. Uh, Good boy. Uh, (laughs) What is his favorite thing to do? I mean, I think for most... Like with most horses, I'm sure it's eating. Uh, Rolling in the middle of a rainstorm is a a top priority it's he's either clean or there's like an inch thick layer of mud on him because he has rolled what everything is the most sloppy there is no in between but it feels so good apparently it does i i have never tried it but he promises me that it's fun we might be missing out on some ingenious skincare regimen of mud you know i mean he he does have a really great coat right now maybe I always thought that was through nutrition and hard work on my part, but maybe it's the mud. <laughs> it's just the mud. Uh, what's his least favorite thing to do? Uh, probably get a bath. Not a fan. Not a fan of any sort of bath. Yeah, um, it's I can relate with the children. Um, uh, what is the biggest or best or most uh, 
you know, beneficial lesson that he has taught you through your time together? Um, optimism, I think. Mm-hmm. I'm not a very optimistic person, but because he lives in the moment, it, a lot of his days are good days because if he doesn't have a good one, he just puts it behind him and he looks forward to the next one. So I'm trying to be more like that. That's awesome. I think we can all learn from that. I, I feel I feel you on that because I, I tend to be the worry ward as well. So Natalie, thank you so much for sharing uh, your blueberry story. He sounds like a total dude. <laughs> he really is wonderful. I, I appreciate you letting me share. And if you're in Kentucky, then feel free to, to come meet him and, and go for a spin. Absolutely. I'm going to take you up on that. Well, Natalie, again, thank you for being a part of Off Off Track. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Off Track. It was great to catch up with Natalie Voss from the Pollock Report. If you've never read any of her articles, make sure you do so. In-depth, informative, and eye-opening, just like this podcast, and listening to her opinions and thoughts about the industry, as well as just hearing her story about Blueberry and how she's been following him before he was even born, having had worked with his damn as a yearling herself. And two... If you haven't done it yet, make sure you head over to Instagram. Check out our Instagram page, Off Track TB, that the great Maddie Hogan has created. You can check out all the previous episodes. And last but not least, make sure you head on over to trfinc.org slash off track to help those horses that can't go on to second careers have a safe and happy life after their racing days are over. Thanks. <laughs>